Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly current affairs program. My name's Emma Webb and this week we are joined, as usual, by Rafe Hadelmanku, Senior Fellow here at the New Culture Forum, the Director of the New Culture Forum, Peter Whittle, and this week we're also joined by Mark Littlewood, the Director of the IEA. So there are a number of stories we want to talk about this week. Uh, firstly, young people. Uh, polling has been done of young people that suggests that nearly one in 10 never intend to start working. Um, and apparently this is because of a hostile job market. So what do we think of that, Rafe? Well, I think it's in a sense quite understandable given what so they've gone through with the pandemic and so forth. They've seen their life chances sort of um, being ebbed away because of the government's policies over lockdown and uh, you know two years of university education really down, down the pan. But if you look into the, if you look into the the data even more uh, intensively, you'll see that one third of of young people feel that they won't even be able to meet their their career aspirations, even if they want to enter the workforce. Um, and you know, one has to ask even you know to what degree actually is there actually much truth in what they're saying? And when you look around it, the productivity levels of Britain are falling. Poland mm -hmm. is now set to be have a higher GDP level than than Britain in 2030. Mm -hmm. There's a huge uh, brain drain from this country at the moment. Right, sure, we've had 500,000 uh, net immigration to this country, but actually 1.1 million have come to this country. 500,000 people have left this country in the last year alone. Mm -hmm. People going to America and Canada and Australia because of the advantages and the opportunities are there. You look around this country and you do wonder where are the opportunities mm -hmm. when people can't get onto the housing ladder when they're, they're stymied by huge amounts of uh, student loan debt that makes mm -hmm. basically the, the tax rate when you combine it all together so oppressive. What is the actual motivation to get ahead in life? But we don't we don't have a shortage of jobs in this country. So is this just young people saying, I don't want to do a job that I don't want to do and therefore I'm mm. not going to work at all? So their yeah. expectations of life isn't that a job is to put food on the table and a roof over your head, but that actually if if if, if princess can't get what princess wants, she's not going to do anything at all. Well, look, I'm. I'm let me try and put the other side of the argument here, I guess. I mean, I did dig into some of the statistics behind it, which I then found worrying that people feel that they can't get on in life and the rest of it. But on the face of it, I was rather unmoved by this statistic, that one in mm -hmm. ten young people don't want to enter the workforce. What proportion of people do we think should enter the workforce? A hundred percent? Nobody should say, actually, I want to be a housewife or a house husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, can't, or, I, I can't believe I'm hearing you making or, or this I, argument to I've, me, Mark. Or I've, I've won the lottery, so I don't need to go to work. Mm -hmm. Or I'm, you know, uh, actually I've got rich parents, so mm -hmm. I'm actually happy to live life as an amateur poet or whatever. It, I was surprised that the number was as little as one in ten. Mm -hmm. uh, it strikes me that a measurable proportion of people won't want to enter the workforce, and we shouldn't mm -hmm. assume that the solution to the productivity problem is 100% of people working harder. Uh, that's actually not the problem. Mm -hmm. Now, when you dig in behind the numbers, it is because people feel there's a block on their aspirations mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. So that I found troubling. But I would not necessarily expect as many as nine in 10 people to ever let enter the mm -hmm. labor market. But it's not, is it, Peter, because um, people want to be stay-at-home mums. That's, that's not the, I imagine if we did polling on that, we'd find that that's not the reason well, why. Well, what proportion do you want to be stay-at-home mums? I'd must, like to see the polling must be on above that. Naught, surely. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a, there is a general, I see a sort of general fatalism amongst mm. many young people now. I mean, they, you know, this is anecdotal, but a kind of sense of, oh, well, it's all kind of sewn up anyway. Mm. It's who you know, not what you know. You hear this a lot. I mean, you know, I'm from the generation 
where there was a lot of social mobility, for example, uh, for people from <coughs> working class backgrounds, grammar schools, and all of that. That's gone largely now. And you do hear young people saying, you know, well, uh, it, it, there's no point in me trying. I've, I've had those mm -hmm. conversations. I also think what it is is this general sense of we're not living in a dynamic society anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, in, in some ways, I, I can't, I've said this before on this show, that in some ways it's almost like we had um, this kind of, uh, that, uh, the experience of Thatcher, but we've kind of gone back in a way to what it was before Thatcher. It's like that mm -hmm. was an aberration. And this is what I think this is a reflection of. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people... And of course they're all lazy. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think people feel that they're so boxed in? What, what is it that is making young people feel so sort of uh, paralysed that well, they can't they, the that they, can't, they can't take control of their own future, that they can't, you know, um, perhaps even that they can't make compromises in order to be successful at, say, they, you know, they live in a particular area and there are certain jobs that are available in that area, that they wouldn't do what in the past people would have done, which is they would have looked at their local context and they would have taken jobs that were available to them, become good and skilled at those jobs, and then to have had a good life out of that. Or move. That, that actually people now, they want to, so that one of the um, aspects of these statistics showed that a lot of young people want to work in the arts, entertainment and recreation, though I'm not entirely sure what the recreation industry is, but it seems that young people want to work in what they perceive to be fun, jobs, fun careers, well, rather than just making a compromise and, in, and, and, and actually having an attitude of service towards your, say, your local area in wanting to do a job that needs filling. Because we do have lots of jobs that do need filling, it's just no one wants to do them. Is, there, is it a surprise that people want to do jobs that are fun? I mean, I, I wanted to be centre forward for Southampton Football Club in England. It turns out I'm not very good at football, so I've had to settle for running a think tank. You know, not a bad second. So, I, I, so, so I, I have actually adapted to my local environment, Emma. I mean, I don't really mind those sort of aspirations. What I mind is any. Uh, I, I mind barriers in the way, and I suspect a lot of a lot of young people must be thinking, I can't even get up the first couple of rungs on the ladder. Mm -hmm. You know, young folk who work for me at the IEA, and look, okay, you know, we don't pay the sort of salaries that you might earn if you're on the fast track in the city of London. But, you know, we're not, uh, we're, people will be on sort of standard rates of pay. No chance of getting on the housing ladder. I mean, forget mm -hmm. it. So if you start to feel that you, you know, even if you are hardworking, willing to apply yourself to the task in mm -hmm. hand, determined to get ahead, that there are so many roadblocks in your way, uh, is it really worth the effort? You know, I mean, you start to calculate, you know, how long will it be before I can buy some share in a flat? I think there yeah. is, but there is this, there is a difference now, which you alluded to, where uh, Emma, which is that basically a lot of young people, when they say they can't find a job, what they mean is the job of that they want to do, mm -hmm. right? Some huge difference in attitude of maybe young people from other countries, who, you know, where welfare, for example, mm. is not such a thing. And so as a result, they sort of, that's it, working means going out yeah. and actually having to get money to pay your rent. And this is what is missing amongst a part of young people. I don't mm -hmm. know how much, but... I think that's the key point, right? Young people aren't a homogenous mm -hmm. blob. What you have, you have students today are far more serious than when I was at university because they don't mm -hmm. have a free ride. They don't get free education. Mm -hmm. They know that they have to actually pay off this debt. They need to have a good 
job, although most of them won't actually pay off their debts. Most of these people have, have um, student jobs on the side that they're doing. They know the competition now, they're competing with the global market. So if you look at dr drug use, if you look at mm -hmm. alcohol consumption, vastly down on where it was in the 1990s and the 80s and the 70s. This is a much more serious bunch. But yet at the same time, you've got this other tranche of youngsters who indeed have been raised in the world of you know pop idol and X Factor, where they think everyone can be a star. <coughs> They've got, oh, I can definitely achieve success in whatever I do. And that's why we're also seeing these unrealistic mm -hmm. salary expectations, where they just assume they're going to be earning 30 grand a year or two out in, in, into their first job. So I think we, we've mm. got to understand that there are different you know, portions these, of the population here. And these, these, these young people are saying, they, because of the hostile job market, they will never enter the, 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 the working force. So going back to what you hostile were saying, Peter, um, well, I mean, we can talk about exactly what that means. Um, you can't do whatever you want but, for any salary you get tonight. But going back to what you were saying, um, if you look at previous generations, like my dad, my dad wanted to be an artist, but he went to uh, normal cannon fodder school, you know, in the 1950s, 60s. There was no chance of someone from his background going on to being an artist. So he, when he was 15 years old, became a shipping agent. And he worked his way from being a shipping agent at 15 years old to eventually being a commercial artist mm -hmm. in, in, in the city. So. People in the past used to recognise the that natural limitations mm. of the, of what the, the, the they didn't just say oh because I've been hand, given a bad hand I'm therefore not going to do anything because I deserve this or I'm entitled to this mm. they would start somewhere and then they would gradually work towards their aspirations and if you talk to anybody who has achieved anything in life they've done things that they would maybe not weren't exactly what they wanted to do but they found ways like climbing a rock climbing wall you know sometimes taking a sort of horizontal step in order to gradually work their way to what they want to do. Yeah, in fact, actually, it's one of the biggest, in, the biggest uh, problems, I think, for young people is that they've sort of been told, you know, that actually, you know, then they have natural talent, mm -hmm. which is being thwarted by external things. Um, you know what they should realize as you say is that people who've made it whether they're pop stars or artists or whatever mm -hmm. are incredibly self-disciplined right mm -hmm. really hard working you know incredibly self-critical all the things that young people now are not really encouraged to be mm -hmm. and in fact you know you mentioned about pop pop idol and everything i remember there was one survey which showed i was writing that, that book uh, uh showed that young people particularly young women wanted the most the thing they wanted to be more than anything was um a celebrity assistant an assistant to a celebrity or an influencer or an influencer on you know and you can make a fair amount of money at that you know but the idea that somehow you would actually have to work hone your talent mm. all of that practice 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 that's all kind of gone it's going back to what you were saying before peter about uh what do we mean by a hostile work yeah. environment what, what do you think they mean by a hostile job market well, I, 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 I was genuinely asking. I do, do not know. It seems like an, a, a weird, a weird uh, label. You know, I don't understand what it well, means. Well, it means. Uh, I'm assuming it means that it's the job market that is not providing them with exactly what they want. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> On any objective analysis, the mm. job market is not hostile. Mm. Salaries are now going up. Mm. Uh, there are many, many vacancies. I would consider mm. a hostile job market to be millions out of work and no yeah. vacancies in the labor market mm -hmm. that would be a hostile job market and mm -hmm. saying well, actually there's only one job in town which is sweeping the streets i'm going to have to do that 
There are mm. millions of job vacancies, literally millions. I yeah, think yeah. I've, I've got the number right. Yeah, you yeah. couldn't, in an objective macro mm. level, this is not hostile. Yeah. It may not be providing you with exactly what you want. Perhaps mm. there are not enough vacancies for celebrity assistants <laughs> to yeah, yeah. appease the various people who want to be celebrity assistants. Yeah. But my, I mean, if you actually just want a job, yeah. the labour market is not hostile well, that, at that the moment. The percentage of those jobs in arts uh, and recreation. What, what does that um, mean, recreation? I'm not actually play, certain. Play, playing PlayStation I, at home. Sports, I don't Possibly. know. Possibly. Um, uh, so I think things like, you know, Alton Towers and so forth as well, right? Everything, maybe, just all maybe. That sort of thing. But that only accounts for something tiny, like 5% of the of the UK job market. Do you know, what, was it, what emerged from that? Nobody said they would like to make things, you know, or yeah. go into manufacturing. Or, or really entrepreneurs. Yes. Well, blame Tony Blair, if right? This whole policy of education, 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 wanting to get 50% yes. of the nation into yeah. university, abandoning the whole idea of apprenticeship schools, you know, and uh, technical colleges like they do, in, like mm -hmm. they do in, in Germany, you know, and building up a manufacturing base. How lovely it would be to and actually have people who were skilled rather than having to import cheap, if, skilled, if, if unskilled labour. If the job that you want doesn't exist, then make it. Create a, create mm -hmm. a business. Mm -hmm. Go out. Create the thing that you want to do. And if people want it, it will be successful. But this attitude of of relying on the state and wanting always wanting the adults in the room to get to to give you what you want—it's a kind of everyone talks about prolonged adolescence and how people grow up so much later in life, or possibly don't even grow up at all. Um, and I but that's what they're used to, right? They've been spoilt by their parents. They're mm -hmm. spoilt in the schools. Everyone's a winner. Uh, grades are inflated now. You can't have losers mm -hmm. in sports day. People are, don't actually realise about mm -hmm. the whole idea of competition and working for things. Do you think uh, this is a brat demic? Uh, well, uh, again, let me let me be the voice. Of, I reckon I'm in that category. The voice, right? I, I'm, I'm fifty, <laughs> going on fifteen. I've always, nearly always, been able to pursue a job that mm. I want to do. I better say this hush hush because I don't really want the board of the IA to know this, but the job I have at the moment I'd probably do for free if I didn't need a salary. You know, I love it that <laughs> yes, much. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do want people to aspire to that. Where there's a problem, and I would agree with the inference I've taken from the rest of you, is that the choice cannot be, I'd ideally like to be a celebrity assistant. Yeah. <laughs> and if I can't be a celebrity assistant to the pop star or footballer of my choice, then I will claim welfare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, the, the alternative yeah. might be, I still aspire to be a celebrity assistant to a footballer mm -hmm. or a pop star or... Uh, a famous author or something, but if I can't do that, in the meantime, as you were saying about your father, mm. Emma, you know, in the meantime, I'm going to have to be a waitress, mm. a waiter, mm. an engineer, whatever it might mm. be. Mm. So uh, the welfare system, I think, is in part to blame. Mm. You know, that, mm. you, you, that not working should be a choice, but mm. not working when you can mm -hmm. and claiming benefit should not be a choice. So and also, you know, not work, you know, not working when you have to work. Yeah. Simple. And no. just expecting everybody else around you to support you. Yeah, yeah. Because who's looking after these, these young people who don't want to ever go into work? Are they still living at home with mummy and daddy? Is that preferable to mm. living in a flat share? Or, um, but this anyway, this ties into our next subject, which is um, this article in The Telegraph uh, by Madeleine Grant. And its title is, why would, young and why would the young and ambitious want to stay in a socialist Britain? So my question to you first is, are we living in a... Are we living under socialist Tory rule? Pretty much. Um, I mean, socialist probably does somewhat overstate it, but I've always been frustrated running a free market think tank with anything that goes wrong in the world 
uh, over the, how long have I been there now? More than a decade. And people start screaming and saying, well, this is the failures of neoliberalism and free market economics. Well, uh, we definitely don't live in a free market neoliberal society. We live in a social democratic society in which state spending has gone up and up and up and is the highest it's, it's ever been in real terms. And taxes are now the highest they have ever been as a proportion of national income. I think ever. I mean, I think mm. I'm mm. even comparing this to feudalism. I think ever. <laughs> um, uh, it might be that the, it it might that be the, the ONS data going back to feudalism is not wholly reliable, but mm. basically ever. So we live in a, in a social democratic society, in, and we seem to be leaning into that, that the solution mm. to everything is more state projects, more state spending, and all of the rest of it. And that's quite extraordinary, really, after, what is it now, 12 years of a conservative government and worrying. And I, I have read Madeline's article. It's interesting. I'm not surprised if she's right that that, that doesn't appeal to aspirational young people. So let's um, put aside the one in 10 who don't want to work for whatever reason. Let's look at, I'm guessing, let's just hypothesize the one in 10 who want to quickly become millionaires and are willing mm -hmm. to apply themselves to almost any task in order mm -hmm. to achieve that. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is now a hostile landscape for yeah. that sort of aspiration. And I think if I've got this right, I think this is a mixture of the bizarre tax thresholds, the high marginal rates of tax, and the way the student loan system works, that over £100,000 a year as a young person paying off your student loans, you could face a marginal tax rate of 90% or more. <laughs> now look, some people might say, well look, if you're earning over £100,000, you sort of already made it. But I want to encourage more and more young people mm -hmm. to be swiftly earning more than £100,000 a year. Not everybody will make it, but I want more and mm -hmm. more of them to do so. Yeah. And if you're saying, well, actually, if you're do, if you one of the people who break through that threshold, whatever you're doing, we're going to confiscate 90% of your yeah. salary, not very surprising that you might conclude that as an aspirational entrepreneur or a hard worker, your chances are perhaps better in, I don't know, the United States of America, Singapore, or somewhere mm -hmm. else in the world. Actually, that's a good point. I was going to ask you, where would they actually be going? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, when they leave, the situation in America has changed as well. I mean, that kind of culture. Kenya, apparently, is really? one of the countries where people are. are, are well, I think that doesn't Madeline list four of her friends, of which one has gone to Kenya. I think I'm not The sorry story in Britain has been the, the stagnation of salaries since 2008. Mm. Not only the stagnation, the decline of salaries. Mm. So if you contrast and compare with Canada, when mm -hmm. we were earning more in this country mm -hmm. before 2008, now we're earning about you know a fifth less mm -hmm. than they are in Canada. And it, it, I was going to say also that there's been a huge drain of people going back to Poland because by 2030 mm -hmm. they're having five percent growth year on year before the pandemic, mm -hmm. and again that's starting up in a couple I of know years too. To Poland, that's remarkable. So. <laughs> we don't live in, and also we have to say though that uh, yeah, tax rates are very high if you have student debt as well. But on the whole, mm -hmm. Britain compares very favorably tax-wise compared to the continent of Europe but not between the United States. with the main not with the United States but with the main players in Europe and actually we don't live in a socialist uh, state we don't live in a socially democratic state we live in an incompetent state that can't actually run its, its services mm -hmm. the only area in which we're socially democratic is with our NHS but if you look at social care if you look at child care most expensive mm -hmm. that there is we're, we're really failing the young who can't actually get onto the property ladder capitalism has failed the young in this country. I had this discussion with Patrick O'Flynn and he said, oh, well, when people get older and they own property, they'll become conservatives. No, I'm no, like, no. yes, but in this country, they aren't yeah. getting onto the property yeah. ladder. And this is the ticking time bomb that the Tories mm -hmm. aren't aware of. Now, where are the happiest countries in, in the world to live or in Europe to live? 
social democratic Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Austria, all with much higher tax rates than here. But the people are happy because the services run far better. This is obviously the IA, and I aren't going to agree on this. But you see, no, the, the conservatism in this country needs to be the conservatism of Charles de Gaulle. It has to be basically as the SDP party actually has the idea of true conservatism, which is leaning to the left on economics and to the right on cultural matters, strong on defense, strong on patriotism, strong conservative values. Cons mm -hmm. actually conserving rather than building a highway through a pastoral landscape in the village conserving communities which means having a welfare state there that's traditional old-school conservatism rather than the neoliberalism that is called conservatism today because we know for, for a fact that only six percent of people in this country actually support the more liberal neoliberal policies of economics that's you know some people here might have subscribed to I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in that six percent and i think there's quite it's always interesting when you make comparisons because I think they are useful. I don't think there's enough uh, comparative economics. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from the rest of the world. But you've particularly highlighted Scandinavia. And I think there's a danger in just for saying, oh, well, they're, they're clearly social democratic. It is true that in those countries, tax take is marginally higher than in the United Kingdom. Not colossally so, by the way. You are talking about 55%. Yeah. Uh, I think well, not, not in Denmark, it's not as high as that. State spending might be that high. Uh, tax take is marginally higher than in the United Kingdom uh, by a few percentage points. I would need to triple check the numbers. So that is true. It is a higher tax environment. But in terms of the depth of the state, really, if you look at Denmark or Sweden, quite a lot more neoliberalism in a number of areas. No national minimum wage in Denmark. Mm -hmm. So for all of those who say, well, let's copy the Danish model, right, should we start with abolishing the national minimum wage then? They mm -hmm. don't have it in Denmark. Mm -hmm. A uh, very free labour market. I wouldn't go so far as to say you can hire and fire at will in Denmark, but a lot more so than you can in the United Kingdom. When Sweden went through their education revolution, uh, on which Michael Gove based his revolution of free schools, Michael Gove of the British supposedly right-wing Conservative Party was not willing to go anything like as far as the Swedish government, mm. who said you can run schools for profit. If you want to run a chain of schools, like you run a chain of hotels or a chain of restaurants and make a profit, be my guest. Now, I mean, but those are, except a partial view of some of the things in Scandinavia, but those things are enormously more neoliberal. And, you know, centre-right Michael Gove was not willing to contemplate the neoliberal radicalism of Swedish school reform, much more social democratic here. So I think that you, when you start to dig into it, it's not just a, I mean, they have higher tax rates and bigger transfer oh, sure. payments, moving money from one cohort to another. But in terms of interference in your daily life, the regulatory burden, the state running things. Well, that's why sure. the, that, I, know I agree entirely with you, and I'm not here to <coughs> condemn neoliberalism. My point is really, it's to have a balance as they do have. That. Mm. That's why it's incorrect to call those countries socialist. They're not mm. socialist countries. They are socially democratic. The free market, of course, has a space. But when it comes to the running of the things that actually count in people's lives, public services, education, childcare, healthcare, social care, we're completely failing despite having invested so much money. And there are other models well, we, should be, we should be looking to. And the fact that those are the most happy and content countries in the world, I would suggest serves as something to aspire to. Rafe, what do you think it would be the consequences of losing, a possibly literally losing a generation of young people to uh, migration? They just leave the country, they go somewhere else um, because maybe there are lower taxes somewhere else or maybe like Peter was saying, you know, maybe the, the labour market is more dynamic there or they feel that they can fulfil their aspirations. You know, 
do, how would what, what do you do you think that this is something that might happen and do you think that you know what do you think we could do to try and keep people it's not not so much to to make like an economic argument for why they should stay here but to appeal to their sense of patriotism the fact that you know well, you 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 ought to stay here because you ought to be contributing to to your country and your country's success that you know you want entrepreneurial young people to feel that their success and the success of their nation are a uh, nation are intertwined well well exactly and the point is if you want to have that if you want people to in, in who are young to have an invested interest in this country you have to essentially turn to the left on economic matters and give people uh, a vested interest in having property in this country, right? To build actually more affordable housing than is being done at the moment. The part, if any conser the Conservative Party is is at risk of an extinction level event in the future, right? Because we know full well that if those under 25 in 2019 had, had been <coughs> voting exclusively, there wouldn't have been a single Tory MP mm -hmm. in the House of Commons. This is a ticking time bomb. Nobody is voting Tory under the 20 age of 25. Anybody on the right, if, if the Conservative Party collapses, if reform or reclaim, whoever comes up to replace them on the right, needs to address the fact that capitalism has actually failed the young of this country. So give people a chance to actually live in the communities in which they were born and raised, where their families are, get rid of, get rid of nimbyism, free up planning reform for a start, and you will actually find people more willing to leave their home. Because leaving your home is a big drastic thing to do. If you can at least give people a foot on the property ladder, that's just one way mm -hmm. out of many. You can actually give people a reason to stay. Mm -hmm. The thing is though, Rafe, I, well, well, I mean, I, I see exactly what you mean. Where I don't disagree with that is that you say capitalism failed young people. They have been schooled in anti-capitalism as well for a long time. Um, and they've certainly been schooled in anti-patriotism for a long time. We're seeing now all these results coming out, like we had, <coughs> we spoke to Eric recently, didn't we? Eric Kaufman on his um, survey about young people, what they thought about the country and everything. Um, no identification with it. Right. Certainly no identification with the local. If anything, the whole thing is to get away from the local. I, I mean, I, I think that's the problem. I think as well, what we've also talked about is that you know, it's not actually just down to the fact they don't, they can't get on the housing ladder. They're staying left wing for a lot, <laughs> lot longer, and I think that is entirely down to the leftward drift in the culture and education. We, we might be having a semantic argument here, but again, a bit like the comparison with Scandinavia. <coughs> I agree with you that there is a housing crisis, and I agree that it is preposterous that there isn't more affordable housing. I mean, ultimately, all housing is ultimately affordable in the sense that if your business model is to make housing that no one can afford, you're going to go out of business pretty fast as a property developer. I agree with all of that. But, but this is not a failure of capitalism. This is a failure of the state. The market is not being able to operate in the housing sector. We have doubled the size of the Greenbelt since 1980. And it's not obvious to me why we would have doubled the size of the Greenbelt. Planning restrictions in this country are... None of this is imposed oh, by yeah. capitalism. Well, there's land, bank, there's land banking, but isn't All there? of this is imposed by the government. It's an absolutely extraordinary environment in which to operate. Doubling the size of the Greenbelt since 1980. The planning process is unbelievably complex to navigate. If you had a capitalist system uh, of housing, we would have lots of affordable homes for younger people on average salaries in London and and the southeast. Well, we've made that impossible. I think I'm right in saying Surrey has more acreage given to golf courses than it does to housing. This is a, 
And but this is because of planning restrictions. This is not capitalism. Well, no, but if you look at this, this if, you look, if, you look, if you look at London, you can easily see how no one is building houses to actually uh, give homes to average people. You know, yeah. the cleaners who used to yeah. live in Battersea and Clapham are now coming well, in from Zone Six on the tube. There's only a tiny amount of land available, <clears> right? You're, you're likely to build premium, expensive property on it as a. But isn't that also because? people from abroad are buying up those properties and not even living in them. Yeah, but, when, but I don't so like, I don't, I don't sort of mind that. There's, there's loads of people from abroad who want to buy loads of houses mm. in Britain, build them and sell them to them. But the problem a, is on the supply side. There's a role for government. You you know, I live at Battersea Power so. Station. There's a big role for government that could have been done to actually increase the, the number of affordable housing developments that are done. That's a big problem. But yeah, mm. you're, Peter, you're quite right. We've had the long march through the institutions. We've had children now from the age of five up to 21 being essentially indoctrinated with left-wing ideology, but why is it taking root? Because it, there's a fertile ground there, because they can see their life chances around them being completely without f any hope of a future because of the problems with the housing lot, uh, situation with low, with low rises in wages. So because they don't see much opportunity there, naturally mm -hmm. these left-wing ideologies seem to take root. No, no, yes, I'd agree. But it's also shared by people in the upper middle classes. Oh, sure. But well, this is yeah. about the young we're talking about. Yeah, no, yes, I agree no, with no. you. Yeah. Young, upper middle class people. It goes across the class. Oh, yeah. Mm. This is it's in the private schools as well. W one thing I take issue with uh, there, Mark, though, is when you say you really don't mind people buying up, you know, let's sell these houses in London. London, to me, is hollowed out, you know? Mm. I don't want to see it hollowed out. I don't, you know, I don't want to see these blocks standing empty where basically they're all just people who have bought them to rent out mm -hmm. or as investment or whatever. I mean, this is all across the capital, if you're just talking about London. I mean, do you not see that as a problem? I'm, I don't agree with you that London's been hollowed out, Peter. Oh. I mean, it's London has probably been the element of the UK that's been the economic success story for the past 20 years. It, yes, I know, but it's failing. Actually, population it's failing growing. Now. So, I mean, you almost in kind of looking at the economy of the UK need to extract London. It is basically a global cosmopolitan metropolis that just happens to be plonked in the middle of England, right? Mm -hmm. The rest of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland are markedly different. You could pretty much lift London out and teleport it to, I don't know, uh, the northeast of America or something. Uh, so in economic terms, it's been a success story. Um, look, I mean, obviously, I don't aspire to a London which is completely full of tower blocks that nobody lives in. That's preposterous. But the, the problem on all of the housing stuff is supply side. It really is. We have, we have allowed building to not quite ground to a halt. Obviously, new properties have been built, but at a rate which is absolutely unfit for a growing population. And the other problem with our housing stock is not just the numbers, it's that it's not fit for purpose. For example, mm -hmm. the number of single occupiers has gone through the roof mm -hmm. over my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So yeah. back in the day, you might have one housing yeah. unit in which six people are living. That might now just be occupied by one person. So that the size and structure of, of our housing stock is not appropriate for what people are demanding, which you know might be, I just want a small flat on my own for you know, 100,000 pounds. And we've got loads of terrace houses which cost you know a million or so. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the thing about sort of foreigners buying up London property, in my view, the reason that's become a scandal is that there isn't enough London property or mm -hmm. southeast property. But the scarcity there is that we are, and the government's now abandoned its target of 300,000 a year. We're just failing to build. It's damn near impossible to build anything in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. whether it's housing 
or look at airport expansion. We haven't expanded runway capacity in London or the South East since the end of the Second World War. Madness. We've been debating at, a runway, th a third runway at Heathrow. Meanwhile, China's built 20 odd well, airports in the same matter. time. And look how aviation's changed since the end of the Second World War. I mean, how many people now want to fly well, away on holiday compared no, no, to the no, 1950s and can really, afford to? This is crazy stuff. I, well, it's crazy in a strange way because of what has happened in the world over the past few years. I mean, you might find that those arguments no longer have much steam because essentially people might end up flying less, not just because. We don't have a third runway. It, that is, we have peaked. All of that sort of activity, I think, is actually peaked. I think they're going to fly a bit more than they did in 1950. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> it, it might be they fly a bit less than they did in 2018. But I mean, in the 1950s and the 1960s, you had to be pretty super rich to fly away on holiday. Now it's well, only be the people in private jets. Everyone else will be eating bugs. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. The thing that we're not. Well, the thing we're not really discussing because it's not part of this discussion but you know i know that people watching this you know at home will be saying what about this is that you said it's just about supply more um it absolutely is not when you've got five hundred thousand people in one year coming in mm -hmm. but you can i mean the thing is i know that we usually obviously differ on this subject but yeah. the thing is is that i remember on the assembly it was we used to have these endless discussions about housing and why wasn't the mayor building enough houses was at the same time we could we had to completely ignore um, the extraordinary immigration that was coming. No, that, that you're right. You're right. I, I, we may not disagree as much on that, Peter, as you think. You're right that there is a demand side lever as, as well, and then you need to distinguish about whether these are refugees who we're then putting at the up in hotels at the expense of the taxpayer, or whether these are hedge fund managers coming in from Wall Street who can easily afford their own property. So demand is will go up as the population goes up. Uh, but the, the reason, I mean, in the UK as a whole, only 10% of land is developed and less than 5% is under concrete, right? So let's not sort of have, a, oh my God, there's no space. Less than 10% of land is developed. Now, obviously, some land can't be developed. It's difficult to build on mountains, right? <laughs> uh, now, but you, you only need to dial this up to something like, I don't know, 12 or 13% of land is developed and six and a half percent of it is under concrete, and you've problem solved. Uh, so and a lot of greenbelt land actually is developable as well. It's not, yeah, a lot it's of not greenbelt really land is developable as well. But, they, but the problem here, of course, is that the, the Tory party are targeting all of their messaging at the Blue Rinse Brigade, you know, the grey-haired brigade. And the NIMBYs. And the NIMBYs, who are actually <laughs> part of that too. No one's t targeting their agendas towards the young. And so oh, this, is the, this is the ticking time bomb. Yep. I, I want us to have a chance to talk about the NHS, because it's a big subject there have been so many stories in the news this week um, about it so I'm going to take slight liberties maybe with running a, a bit over time so that we have ch a chance to um, so we're looking at nurses striking ambulance staff striking uh, news reports suggesting that actually uh, though so the am in the ambulance strike there will be certain people who are prioritized for um, what what remains of the ambulance service um, and those that are not included are likely to be elderly people who have falls, which, as we know, for many elderly people, are yeah. fatal. Um, so we're told, on the one hand, that nurses striking, medical staff striking, isn't going to affect patient care. But if that were the case, then it wouldn't make any sense to strike. So they really, they are actually holding the lives of the British public um, hostage. Um, and we've been told over the last two years that we need to protect the NHS but now it seems you know we keep seeing stories like children dying of having uh, strep throat um, and 
all of this, the news around cancer care. I know that we, I think there is some disagreement between us about whether we think striking is okay or not okay. No, no, I mean, um, I, all I would say, I, mean, I think you, you mean me, darling, don't you? No, no, I, <laughs> I imagine that probably there's a no, 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 no. bigger... All, all I would say is when you hear, I can't remember it's a government minister this week saying, um, oh, they're going to absolutely, you know, destroy Christmas, that's intention. You know, you've heard it all before. You sort of, goodness sake, people are going to strike when it's going to have an effect, you know. What do, you mm -hmm. ex do you expect them to go off and do it, you yeah, know, where basically point. no one's going to notice? Um, I just generally don't like, uh, I don't like some of the talk you hear in parts of the Conservative Party anyway about basically stopping strike. I mean, basically taking away the right. But there's got to be a difference, right, between po the postal service and the train striking and ambulance and nurse and nurses striking because that's really actually putting people's lives at risk and it seems to me that that doesn't match with what we keep being told you know with relation to covid yeah. that we need to protect granny um when actually the idea that they're as well that they're striking because the service is so bad and it's so inefficient well obviously we need to reform the nhs because we don't have a universal health care we have a universal lack of health care cool. um and so I guess my question to you is, do you think that these nurses and ambulance workers and 999 call operators should actually be allowed to strike? Should the emergency services be allowed to strike? Firemen as well included in that. Well, I, 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 maybe this would be an area where Peter and I would agree. I, I think there should be certain vital services in which you can't go on strike. The army can't go on strike, right? And I'm not quite sure what applies to the police force. Uh, uh, but it should go to what your contract of employment states. Uh, and I think it's ridiculous that we've been issuing 999 operators with contracts of employment that allow them to strike. Mm. I mean, why? But once you've given them that contract of employment, which we have seen fit to do, I don't think you can, it's quite difficult to unilaterally take that away. So, uh, I mean, it's a bit bizarre where we seem to have a situation in which I don't know whether there's a right to strike at the new culture forum there isn't at the IEA and whilst I would like to consider our work vital you might say that it's not <laughs> quite as vital as being an ambulance driver very strange that we've embedded that right I wouldn't allow that in your contract of employment once it's in the contract of employment I don't really like politicians deciding what proportion of union members need to vote above what threshold to call the strike that can all be done by contract law not by legislation so I would treat sort of trade unions a bit like we treat chess clubs or any other voluntary society. It can either be written into your contract of employment or not. On the NHS there, and going back to our original point, I'm going to change my mind. Maybe we are a socialist country. The NHS is a socialist system. It is not a social democratic system. In economic terms, we run the provision of health care on the same basic model as the Soviet Union ran their provision of food supply. Uh, you know, essentially free at the point of use, no price mechanism facing the customers, uh, paid for out of general taxation run by the government. Guess what? You get the same problems. You get shortages. You get queues because queues become the rationing mechanism rather than the price mechanism. And the NHS, you know, is going to have a particularly appalling winter, partly because of the strikes, partly because of the COVID lockdown backlog. I wonder whether we might now be at least edging towards getting to a position where arguing for its reform mm -hmm. is considered to be a sensible thing to do rather than an impossible thing to do. And all of this 
standing on your doorstep at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening, <laughs> sort of North Korean style, you know, applauding it, and the first person to sit down get shot is ridiculous. So, yeah, and, and we should look, actually, I think, some of the European systems that don't have these problems. The winter crisis, it's as if the people running the NHS are surprised that winter comes around once a year. Uh, chap who works for us, um, great German guy called Christian Niemitz, after he'd been living here a few years, he said, why is there a winter crisis in British healthcare every year? Mm. So he looked back and said, I, I never was aware of this in my native Germany. Has there ever been a winter <laughs> crisis in Germany? I don't remember any, anyone in German healthcare saying there's been a winter crisis. So he looked all the way back to when the last winter crisis was in German healthcare. 1945, <laughs> which uh, understandably, but Germany was in a bit of a state in 1945. This is actually a really good point because an, um, one other aspect of this is that one of the reasons why we have such dire state of affairs now is because during uh, lockdown, we c cut far more services than other countries did, oh, particularly yeah. on oh. things like cancer care. Mm -hmm. And not just on early diagnosis and, and uh, you know, catch, catching things early, but also on the treatment as well. We cut cancer treatment, for crying out loud. So I just wonder whether this whole situation with the strikes, a lot of people have said that with the train companies that actually they are hastening their own demise because mm -hmm. it's like... It's There's a lot to, of sympathy, actually, but do you, well. but do so you think that a lot of sympathy. But do you think that this will turn things around in the opposite direction for the NHS, that yeah. people will start thinking, actually, no, I've had enough of this. We obviously need to have a different... Because no, the, nurse, no, the nurses no, and the doctors no. are also unhappy with the way the system is being run. So obviously something has to change because the solution can't just be keep throwing more money at this big black hole um, and trying to find more money to feed the beast because that money doesn't exist and so things I, are getting much worse. I think what I think what will do for it actually isn't the sort of strike and whether it happens or not, these strikes. Actually, I don't know if you saw, but this week uh, they're piloting a scheme down in Cornwall for basically um, online or, you know, home testing, you know, whereas once you would go to the doctor, you know, and have a, a, a test like midlife, this is for midlife people in the 50s. Essentially, they're now saying you do it all at home, right? So you will take your own, uh, you know, you'll do your own blood test, you do all of that stuff. Uh, appalling idea, <laughs> frankly. You know, no, seriously, terrible idea. You know, ask any doctor worth this or what happens. With, you know, you go along to the doctor and they can sort of see things about you, you know, they're, they're trained to see things about you. Um, people are already losing this kind of mm -hmm. interpersonal thing anyway, uh, as we all no, and this will increase it because they say if this is a success, we will roll it up. Well, I don't quite know what a success in that case would look like. A success probably means cheaper for them. <laughs> what, 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 yes, it, 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 whatever it is, that is what will get people down. That that is yeah. eventually, I think, what will alienate people. Think, what are we paying all this for? This money? Yeah, that that will be it. I think. What do you think, Ray? Yeah, well, something that ha has to change absolutely. But I think the British people are so in love with the concept of free at the point of access. I can completely understand with. Look, Japan has the world's best healthcare system. They have 30% contribution from members of the public. Uh, Switzerland, my cousins are, they have complete healthcare insurance. There's no, no service. But Denmark is quite like ours, but they spend less in Denmark than we do on their health service. And theirs is free at the point of access too. Uh, and the Danes have a much higher ratio of beds so to So we're all just going to move to and Denmark. Doctors, right, this, is, this is exactly what I'm trying to explain, that there are it's solutions that are, yeah. that, that, are, that are out there to use. But, of course, one of the other reasons, of course, if you do follow what I was saying earlier about having a truly conservative, gaullist, 
policy is if you have a social care system, you won't have the ambulance problems because the reasons that there are so much, I mean, delays in the NHS is because people cannot leave hospitals because uh, there's nowhere for them to go. And so you have this huge backlog, which is the cause of the ambulance strikes. So it's having a fun an absolutely functioning system that works on every level. But there's a really interesting thing here. I don't disagree with what you've said, but it seems to me, I'm guessing a bit because I'm just trying to get into the heads of the British public at large. The two things that are loved, admired, celebrated about the National Health Service are that it's free at the point of use and it's universal cover, right? That's what people, I think, want. They want to know that everyone has got medical cover and that you're not charged, you're not asked for your Amex card when you go in and have an operation. However, this is not unique to the National Health Service. In the entirety of the European Union, healthcare is universal and typically free at the point of view, you're not suddenly asked to whip out your credit card if you need a heart bypass operation. Yet in virtually every other European country, you mentioned Denmark again, I actually think the Dutch system is probably the best system in Europe, and if you were to look further afield, the Singaporean system produces similar outcomes for the NHS, but about half the price. So the universality of it, and the fact that it's free at the point of use, I mean, not always, so you have to pay for medical prescriptions, but essentially free at the point of use, you're not suddenly you don't suddenly get a bill for half a million pounds because you need chemotherapy. This is, this is the position right across mainland continental Europe. And so I wonder whether we need to have a bit more humility in the United Kingdom and rather pretending, pretending to ourselves that the NHS is the envy of the world. There you go. And Johnny Foreigner is looking over the channel green with en envy, but he's such an idiot that they've not <laughs> replicated our system. Perhaps we've got a bit more to learn from the Germans, the Dutch and the Danes who have more marketized systems still universal, still free at the point of use. We've got a lot to learn here and I think not much to teach. I think Final the, thought? You know, the, the, uh, I think in France you actually pay a small amount uh, for prescriptions and things. And, GP and you know, why not have that? You know, you, there's a sign up in, in my local hospital uh, which basically is, I think uh, each appointment missed, for example, is costs God knows how much, 200 quid or something like that. And, and 200 have been missed in the past month. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I think that the Which is crazy because that's actually more than a GP appointment cost in the private sector. <laughs> Just don't you think it will be a battle royal, whatever mm -hmm. happens, simply because the NHS has become so politicised. I don't mean this political football thing. The actual NHS, yeah. the people who work in it. So, for example, I remember you know when people there was a, a kerfuffle about uh, health tourism a few years ago and how much it cost. You know, like two billion possibly. The fact of the matter is, the people in the health service will simply not administer any new rules. They say, oh, no, no, we're here to give health care to all. So they won't ask for ID cards. They won't ask for all of that. But more and more people will opt out, Peter. I think that's what's going to happen. There's some sign that's happening at the moment with GPs that people are actually yes. saying, I'll go privately and pay 50 yeah. quid rather than yeah, wait yeah, yeah, 15 yeah. days. So I think this will be as much a bottom-up yeah. reform as a top-down. But there's, a, but there's a common issue here, whether you're dealing with immigration. I mean, sorry, let me, that is the common problem here. Whether it's, <laughs> whether it's NHS reform, housing, low wages, the brain drain, immigration is the thing you need to sort out before you can even tackle any of those. Because there's no point mm -hmm. trying to do reform when you have one million coming in total per year. That's our final thought. So thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. To be continued. Yes, it definitely will be. <laughs> thank you, Peter. Thank Amazing. you, Rafe. And thank you, Mark, for joining us. And thank you for watching. Please like, comment, subscribe. Let us know what you think of today's subjects. Let us know what you might like us to discuss in future shows. And we will see you next time on Newspeak. Hello. 
If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.